Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on The Basic Podcast, where you can hear all of our latest messages, interviews, and more. Basic is a college and young adult ministry focused on uniting people to join in Jesus' work. To keep up with what's happening in our community, take a moment to follow us at Basic Worship or explore our website, basicworship.org. We hope you enjoy this episode of our podcast and that it helps you take a next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, hey, my name is Bradley. Uh, I'm on staff here at Orchard Hill Church, and uh, it's the last week of basic. We kind of, we're here, and this is our last time we're going to be gathered uh, before the end of the summer. So honestly, I can't think of a better series to end on than this series we've been doing about ridiculous faith and the story of Elisha. And before we dive in, I want to start by saying that it has been a serious gift to be with all of you this entire entire year, this entire semester, whether you showed up one time or you've been here every single week, uh, this year's been ridiculous. And I've realized so much how thankful I am for every single person in this room and for this particular community. I love the way you care for each other. I love the way you care for the next generation. And uh, you lead me in worship every time I'm here, whether I'm like in person or like lurking online. Also, hi, online people. You're not lurkers. It's just me. I'm the lurker. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, it's, it's really a big deal uh, what you guys create at this community. So one important thing you should know about me before, you know, we talk for a long time is that I'm a dad. And that means that there's like no way you're getting out of here without me showing you a picture of my kid. I think it's actually against the law. So, yeah, yeah, right. So uh, here is a picture, a few pictures of my family. Uh, look at him. Come on. It's dumb. Okay. So they're in the middle. Uh, that's my beautiful wife, Alexandria. Uh, and mostly that picture's there so you know where Rowan gets his, like, ridiculous curls. It's not our fault. It's not that we don't know how to do a kid's hair, okay? It's that it won't behave. And all the rest of the pictures are Rowan, which is indicative of our entire life. Like, Rowan's just everywhere in our entire life. Um, and before you ask, this picture on the left here is Rowan with 17 puzzles of a variety of amounts of pieces, all of which he did by himself. And yes, I am way too proud of this. I'm pretty sure he's a genius, okay? Rowan does more puzzles than Carter Moore at Christmas time, which is really saying something. He's kind of like me in that his interests mostly align with those of like a 90-year-old woman. Between, <laughs> between my bird watching and his puzzling, we would do really good at a nursing home. We'd be like the talk of the commons, okay? It'd be really great. Uh, so he's really into puzzles. Another thing Rowan's into is throwing tantrums. So back when he was one and I was naive, uh, someone told me about the terrible twos and I straight up did not believe them. I was like, no, developing a sense of personal autonomy coupled with unbridled emotion cannot be that bad. But it was. It happened and now I know, okay? So his first, one of his first tantrums, uh, I was going to show you a picture, but shortly after I took the picture of one of his first tantrums, I felt really bad for documenting my child's pain, so I deleted it. So I was actually looking for it, and then I remembered that my morals got the better of me. Sorry about that. But the reason for that first tantrum was that he was informed that it is generally a bad idea to eat a toilet seat, and he just completely freaked out. And as all those like parenting influencer Instagram accounts would say, wow, buddy, those are some big feelings. We say that a lot in this house. So one morning a few weeks ago, after Alex left for work, Rowan and I, we're just like, we're chilling with Elmo while I make some scrambled eggs, you know what I'm saying? So I get the eggs on the plate, I sprinkle them with a little, someone said same over there. 
I'm so glad you're chilling with Elmo too. Uh, so I get the eggs on the plate. I sprinkle them with some cheese because we stay classy in the Reese house. I put the cheese away. I put the plate in front of Rowan and he goes, whoa, which means that I need to blow on it profusely to cool it off. So I do that. And then I turn around and I start making coffee when I hear a blood curdling scream. So I turn around. Rowan is completely red-faced. The dude is like wailing. And my first thought is, oh my God, my son is gravely injured beyond prepare. And so I run over to him and he says, hold you, which right now means that he wants me to pick him up. Doesn't make sense. He doesn't understand pronouns. So I pick him up and I check him over for like, I don't know, third degree burns or ruptured arteries. And obviously he's completely fine. And then he looks at me and with these big fat tears and like nasty snot streaming down his face and a look of pure devastation that is still somehow really adorable, Rowan says, Moti. And for those of you who don't understand toddler speech, moti is a very common, at least in our house, a very common two-word phrase that translates to adult English as more cheese. <laughs> more cheese. My son felt as if he could not go on, as if the end had truly arrived because there was not enough cheese on his scrambled eggs. Did I mention I hadn't had coffee yet? In fact, it was like he forgot that these beautiful eggs that I crafted for him didn't even exist, that they weren't even there. He was overwhelmed by what he didn't have. All he could see was that there wasn't enough cheese and it was simply unacceptable and I had to remedy the situation immediately and I did. Those were some big feelings, right? But I think we all kind of get like Rowan sometimes. In fact, if we really think about it, I bet all of us have moments where we feel completely overwhelmed by what we don't have. These moments happen all the time, from our most normal and like boring days to some of our most broken and painful days. Can you think of some of yours? Your list of not enoughs probably doesn't have to, much to do with cheese, although I don't know your life, maybe it does, but maybe it's been that there's not enough excitement in your life. You feel stuck or bored in your current season. Maybe there's not enough people to hang out with. You feel alone much of the time. Maybe there's not enough solitude because you live with roommates and you can't escape, you know what I'm saying? And maybe there's not enough sleep to get you through the day. Maybe you feel like there's not enough experience to put on your resume. Maybe there's not enough money in the bank to make you feel secure. Maybe there's not enough direction for where you should go next. Maybe there's not enough courage to go where you know you should. Maybe there's not enough joy not enough peace, not enough love in your life or in the world. Some of us aren't even sure what it is that we need, right? I'm there all the time. And it's so easy for all of these not enoughs from our everyday like first world problems to our deepest fears and anxieties, it's easy for our not enoughs to completely consume us, for us to become overwhelmed by what we don't have. And when this happens, how do we feel? We feel hopeless, right? We feel like we're running on empty. We're wishing for something to change. We're just trying to make it through the day. Maybe some of you are there tonight. And if that's you, the first thing I need you to know is that you're not alone, okay? This isn't a you problem. It's not just a me problem. This sense of need for something that we can't provide for ourselves is one of the core aspects of the human condition. I learned that word in college philosophy, so I'm really smart, okay? This problem is completely universal, so you're not alone. And whatever your need is, whether it's big or small, it's valid. And there's good news for all of us. Because wherever you're at, whatever your need is tonight, whatever your current season looks like, I really believe that God wants to meet us right here, right now. And he wants to show us that he's a God of ridiculous 
provision. He wants to remind us of his kindness toward us, his power that's for us, and his presence that's with us. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to finish this series with one last story from Elisha's life where God used Elisha to show his kindness, his power, and his presence. I'll give you a second to turn there. When you get there, say, oh, hi. Thank you. I'm so glad. I was really worried no one would say it. Man. Okay. 2 Kings chapter 4. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation because it's my jam, and I'm sure whatever you use is wonderful as well. 2 Kings 4. We're going to start with verse 1. One day, the widow, I love how they just like set the scene. There's no context, just like it was a day. One day, the widow of a member of a group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, my husband who served you is dead. And you know he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. That's kind of heavy, right? We're gonna stop and make sense of what's going on. Elisha, so he's actually the leader of a group of prophets. And when one of the prophets in his group dies, his wife approaches him on what we can only guess is her absolute worst day. First of all, her husband, this man that she's loved for however many years has just died. Imagine the pain and the grief she's experiencing in this moment. But then it gets worse because all of a sudden her grief turns to panic as this debt collector shows up and says that if she can't pay, he's gonna take her two sons, the last two members of her immediate family. He's gonna take them from her. And he's gonna force them to become slaves, which for some twisted reason was totally legal back then. Honestly, when I read this for the first time, I legit made a note in my Bible that says, you should probably get some life insurance. Don't think about that yet, okay? Unless you're Ryan Van Monen. You have to think about that right now. Get life insurance. But seriously, imagine that. Imagine losing the person you love most in this world, being completely shaken with grief, and then learning that the two other people you love most are in danger of being taken from you and forced into slavery. And for good measure, pile on top of that the fact that this woman lived in a period of history that was deeply patriarchal, deeply oppressive of women. And because of that, it would have been nearly impossible for her to get a job to support herself or her family. Think of all the not enoughs running through her mind that day. Obviously, she has not enough money, but I really don't think that was her biggest issue. She also had not enough time with her husband, not enough protection for her kids, not enough security for her family, not enough hope that somehow everything was gonna be okay. I bet she'd trade all the money in the world for those things. Can you feel her pain? Can you feel that hopelessness? And then something really amazing happens because instead of shrinking back or freezing up, instead of letting her hopelessness win, this courageous woman, she chose to approach Elisha in a moment of ridiculous courage or like ridiculous faith or maybe just ridiculous desperation. And whatever it was, God met her there. He met her right there in that moment through Elisha. He used this situation to show her his kindness and his power and his presence. Take a look at what happens. This is verse two. What can I do to help you? Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? She replies, nothing at all except a flask of olive oil. Already, it's hard to see, but look at how God is showing his kindness toward her through Elisha. When she approaches him, he doesn't just tell her that he's sorry for her loss or send like positive vibes or thoughts and prayers her way. He gives her his full attention. 
and he tries to help her while also treating her with dignity. What do you have in the house, he said. It's like he's saying, listen, I think I can help you, but I also know that you have value to bring to the table. Elisha treats her like she is enough, even if she doesn't have enough. I'm so sorry. If I spit on you, I'm so sorry. I feel like I've, I've watched spittle happen. Anyway. And okay, so she replies, she's like, I don't have anything. She's so consumed by what she doesn't have that she forgets about this olive oil for a second, right? Which at the time, olive oil was a pretty valuable material. In these few moments of God showing his kindness toward her, I bet that already this woman started to feel maybe a glimpse of hope. Now watch as that hope continues to grow as God displays his power for her. Here's verse three, and I promise I'm gonna stop interrupting, okay? Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and your neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask, the one she had at home, into the jars, setting each one aside when it's filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her and she filled one after another. Soon, every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on what's left over. So Elisha, he tells her to literally go door to door, like you're eight years old and selling candy bars, throughout her neighborhood and collect as many empty jars as she can possibly get. In the NIV, some of you probably have that, Elisha literally literally says, don't ask for just a few. Get as many as you can. And I love how casual he is about this literal miracle that God is about to perform. If it were me, I'd be completely freaking out, like trying to explain what is going to happen. But he's just like, yeah, you can just, you know, set the jar aside when it fills up because God miraculously multiplied your olive oil. It's not a big deal. And he does that. So she does what he says. She gets jars from the people around her. She puts them all in her living room with her sons. And I can picture the look on their faces as they start pouring, pouring and the oil just keeps coming out of the flask. I can picture the tears of relief and joy that fall to the ground as they start to realize that they're going to get to stay together. That maybe everything was going to be okay. But see, God is better than okay. In fact, God is always better than we think he is. So when she lugs the oil back to Elisha, we find out that God didn't just provide enough oil to pay her debt, to keep her family safe for this moment, but God also provided them security for the future. They could live off of what was left. God used this situation to clearly display his power for her. And as I've spent time with this story, you know, like for a week, because they asked me a week ago, it's not not a big deal. I've come to realize that God did more than just provide for them financially through this miracle. It was more than finances, right? This miracle was also about God's presence with her. It's about God's presence with us. Imagine with me for just a second how the conversation might have gone between this woman and her friends and neighbors when she knocked on their door. I'm positive that she left with more than just an empty jar. In fact, I imagine that if she assembled all of these jars in her house, she probably had more than this, maybe this jar reminded her of the longtime friend who gave her the jar only after sitting with her and crying with her and grieving with her, maybe sharing a meal with her, reminding her that she wasn't alone. Maybe this jar 
reminded her of one of her neighbors. Maybe it was a friend of her husband or a parent of one of her kids' friends who said that whatever it took, they were going to find a way to keep her sons out of slavery. And maybe this massive jar reminded her of that old lady down the street, a widow herself who reached out and grabbed her hands and told her that she could feel her pain, but that she was strong, that everything would be okay, that God would make a way because he always does. Y'all, I'm convinced God didn't just send her door to door to collect jars, but to remind her that even on her worst day, God was with her through this community that loved her and was there for her. And it wasn't even just her community. It was even better than that because the presence of God himself was there. And we can see it through of all the things, the olive oil. See, there's something that this woman would have known about olive oil that's kind of hard for us to understand these days. At that time in the Middle East, olive oil was used for many things, like cooking, like us, a little EVOO, or making leather pliable, or it was used for f- as fuel for light and heat, and it was even used as moisturizer or like a perfume. But one of the most important uses of olive oil was actually in the temple, in ancient Hebrew culture, and actually all throughout scripture, olive oil is used as this profound metaphor for the presence of the Holy Spirit. So when God took that oil and he filled every single empty jar in her home, the woman would have understood the message. God was with her. And through the presence of the Holy Spirit, he was filling every empty space that was left behind by the death of her husband through her community, and through the Holy Spirit, God showed that his presence was with her. Y'all, the God who created you and loves you and sees you and knows you, he's a God of ridiculous provision. He meets you in every single one of your needs, whether it's a big need or a small need, and he reminds you of his kindness toward you, of his power that's for you and his presence that's with you. So back in November of 2020, my family experienced one of our worst days. On November 5th, my wife Alex was 16 weeks pregnant when she experienced some complications. So we quickly violated our quarantine to send Rowan uh, to be with some friends while we raced to the emergency room. And by the end of the night, we had lost our daughter Ivy. And then we caught COVID in the hospital because 2020 sucked. It probably goes without saying, but this hurt. And it still hurts a lot. Alex and I are still navigating the grief and the pain from losing Ivy, and we probably will be for a really long time. And just like the woman who lost her husband, and just like all of us on our worst days, I still can't fully see God's provision from that day. But as Alex and I look back, we're starting to see some glimpses of God's kindness toward us, his power that's for us and his presence that was with us even then. I can remember God's kindness and power and presence through the nurse that gently guided Alex and I through the most difficult moments of that night, through the songs and the scripture and the people who helped us to grieve, and even through the fact that Alex was able to take a paid leave of absence from work because we had COVID, which by the way, wasn't that bad, so it was all good. But most of all, we saw God's ridiculous provision through our community. We knew that our friends and our family loved us, 
But I remember thinking in the days after Ivy died that we had no idea how loved we were. Even while we were quarantined, our friends and our family, they surrounded us with love and care in so many ways, but most of all, by just being present through it all. From the moment we shared what was going on, multiple times a day, we'd receive a phone call or someone would drop off a meal, or we'd just get a text that said we were being prayed for in that moment. Those were days that could have easily been filled with isolation and loneliness. But God knew what we needed, and he provided us with a community that was immeasurably more than we could ask for or imagine. And as we, as we continue to grieve and process over the past few months, I'm finding that with every little shred of God's kindness and power and presence that we uncover, my hope grows. My confidence that there is still more of God's provision that I can't see yet, it grows. One of the reasons we chose the name Ivy is that it's really pretty, but also because Ivy represents faithfulness. To us, our daughter's name means that God is faithful. Faithful in his promise of resurrection through the resurrection of Jesus. Faithful to bring us to the day when we can meet our little girl in heaven, completely whole. Nothing missing, nothing broken. And in the meantime, faithful to remind us in every season of his kindness and his power and his presence. So basic, it's the last week. And I know that each of us walked into this room tonight with our own story, with our own fears, our own anxieties about what's next. We all walked in here with our own set of not enoughs. And these days I am more and more convinced that what's required for all of us to move forward with the joy and the courage and the excitement and the energy that we really desire isn't actually more money or more sleep or more fill in the blank. What we really need is hope. What we need is is trust. It's the confidence that wherever we go, whatever we face, God will continuously provide every single thing that we need. We don't have to fixate on the job because God takes care of it. We don't have to fixate on the money because God takes care of it. So as we all look ahead to whatever's next, whether it's finals or a new job or no job yet or nothing is about to change for you, how can all of us increase our hope? How can we increase our trust? How can we continuously put ourselves in the position to receive what God wants to give us and to notice when he does? I'm not an expert. I haven't lived very long. I've lived a little longer than you, but still not very long. But I have three quick ideas, okay? It's a short list. The first one is get to God. For the widow in this story, getting to God looked like getting to the prophet Elisha. But this is actually much easier for us because God literally lives inside of us through the Holy Spirit. So we have unlimited access to our God of ridiculous provision. So my question is, why is this so difficult? Why is it hard for us to get to God and do it with honesty? Honestly, I think it's because as like modern Americans who are really steeped in this culture of independence and like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, many of us have bought into the lie that God only helps people who help themselves when the truth is that God is how you help yourself. We all need to be reminded that God cares about the details of our lives, that God actually wants wholeness for us, that there's no need too big or too small for you to bring to him. God sees you right now. He knows you better than you know yourself and he loves you infinitely. And when we get to God, 
we put ourselves in a position to notice his provision that was already there, to recognize his kindness and his power and his presence that's already at work in our lives and to watch as he faithfully fills all the empty spaces left behind by all of our not enoughs. So in whatever way works best for you, whether it's keeping a journal or praying out loud in your car or taking a walk in the woods or finding encouragement in scripture or shouting words to worship songs or maybe a combination of all of those things with every need and in every season, we gotta get to God. The second thing is get to community. I believe that God sent the widow into her community immediately because community is a central human need for all of us. In fact, community is the core reason that humans have become the dominant species on earth. Yes, I'm talking kind of science right now. I'm kind of into it. It's a tangent. Just follow me, okay? So we got to be honest. Humans, when we're compared to most other animals, we are not physically impressive. And if you don't believe me, just ask the paper cut I got yesterday, okay? God did not give us thick skin or sharp claws or like wings to fly, although that'd be cool, but he did give us each other. We weren't created to survive alone, but we were created to thrive together. We were created for community. And I have most often seen God's ridiculous provision through his people. And I know that many of you have similar stories, whether it's just a hug at the right time or someone bought your coffee for you. For many of us, getting to community starts with taking a risk, right? For some of us, that's the hardest part. It's starting a conversation. It's inviting people to hang out even though you don't know if they'll say yes. It's saying yes to someone else's invitation. It's joining a life group, maybe joining a team or just showing up. But then community becomes most valuable when we all break past whatever lie it is that makes us ashamed to bring our needs to each other. Because here's the real truth. Every time you approach a friend or a neighbor with a need, God uses them to strengthen you, to support you, to remind you that you're not alone. God uses them to show you his provision, but it's even better than that. I'm saying better than that a whole lot. That's because God's better than we think he is. It's better than that because every time you approach a friend or a neighbor with a need, God also uses you to show them what he can do. It's a win-win. And that brings us to the last point of this very tiny list. Okay, number one, get to God. Number two, get to community. Number three, tell your story. Imagine with me for a minute what happened after God showed the widow his ridiculous provision. Imagine what it was like when she returned to all those jars back to her friends and her neighbors. She returned to those houses with more than just an empty jar. She walked through her life with even more than a secure family and secure finances. This woman had a story. It was a story, it was a story of God's kindness and his power and his presence. And every time she shared her story, everyone around her had the opportunity to experience what I really believe to be one of the most powerful thoughts a person can have. Man, if God did that for her, maybe he can do that for me too. Man, God was kind to her. Maybe he's kinder than I think he is. God used his power for her. Maybe he can actually help me. God was present with her. Maybe I'm not as alone as I feel. Y'all, your story, whether you think it's big or small or boring or powerful or whatever, your story has a purpose. 
It has the potential to increase the hope and the trust and the confidence of the people around you. I really believe that God wants to use all of our stories to bring people closer to him. So in every season, with every need, no matter what it is, get to God, get to community and tell your story. And I really, really believe that whatever comes next for you, you're gonna see God's ridiculous provision in your life because he is kind and he really is powerful and he really is present right here, right now. So open Amanda, you can go ahead and move to the back. And as we move forward with the night, we're gonna take a few moments to get to God through some reflection. Hope and Amanda are gonna play some music actually in the back of the room there. Don't be surprised by that. And while they do, I'd invite you to bring these questions to God. The first one is, where in your life have you seen God's kindness toward you, his power for you, and his presence with you? Where have you already seen it? And the second one is, uh, what is one, it's not that, that's all right. It's what is one not enough that you bring into the room? Where in your life do you need God to bring you some ridiculous provision? Y'all remember, God cares about every single detail of your life. He wants wholeness for you. So I encourage you to bring those needs to him honestly. And then I'd encourage you to spend some time just listening. God is with you right now. And he's always speaking. So maybe quiet yourself a little bit. Maybe take some deep breaths. Maybe write down some thoughts that come to your mind. Because God has something to share with you about his kindness and his power and his presence. And while you do that, we're actually gonna keep worshiping together in the back of the room. And uh, so take your time, but whenever you're ready, we actually invite you to leave your seat and uh, gather with us in the back as we finish this year by singing together, lifting up some truths about God's faithfulness to us. Cool? But before we do that, I'm gonna pray. So pray with me. Father, you are the God of provision. You're a good father. You're the God who provides for us. You're the God who hung the stars. You're the God who fashioned the planets and the whole universe and this earth for us. And you see us and you know us and you actually care about every single detail of our life. God, I thank you that that's who you are. God, tonight we come in this room with lots of not enoughs. We come in this room with anxieties about the future. We come in this room with fears. We come in this room with questions. And God, first of all, I just thank you that there is nothing we can bring to you that will bring shame to us. God, every time we approach you, we are radiant with joy. You don't give us shame. So Father, help us to bring ourselves to you honestly. And then, Father, would you fill us with hope? Would you reveal to us your provision? Would you reveal to us your kindness and your power and your presence and help us to trust you? Help us to look forward and smile at the future because you are there and you're the one who crafted it for us. Father, we love you. Amen. Amen.